Hello, everyone. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Marina Shagina, a research fellow for economic sanctions, standards, and strategy at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, for a great discussion, a deep dive on the Russian sanctions and what is the current state of the Russian economy, what can be done more to ratchet up the pressure on Russia. Maria, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the current sanctions. A variety of different sanctions have been put on Russia since February 22nd, when uh, Vladimir Putin announced uh, the deployment of forces initially in DNR and LNR, and then obviously on February 24th, when he invaded the rest of uh, Ukraine. And uh, we've had uh, a range of sanctions that have been uh, put on Russia since then. Uh, can you explain to us everything that has been done so far by both the U.S. and the broader national community? Sure. To describe the full extent of sanctions, we'll probably need the whole episode. So I'd like to focus on the key pillars of the current sanctions regime. We should start by saying that Russia has become the most sanctioned country in the world, surpassing North Korea and Syria together. So that tells us quite a lot how rapidly the sanctions were ratcheted up. So now we have more than 7,000 designations that were imposed uh, since February 24 this year. So the sanctions were unprecedented in various uh, terms, uh, in terms of swiftness, unity, and scope. And here I would like to focus on the latter one, on scope of the sanctions regime. The slogan of the current sanctions regime, unlike the previous one in 2014, was start high, stay high. It was a, a deliberate choice not to be incremental anymore and to perhaps rectify the foreign, um, the previous policy by the Obama administration to impose sanctions uh, piecemeal. So the, the first pillar of the sanctions regime is obviously financial sanctions. The, the key here is uh, the freeze of uh, central bank assets. More than half of it was frozen. So we don't have an exact figure, but it's believed to be more than $300 billion. Such measure was never applied against a G20 economy, hence unprecedented measure. And this was not expected by the Russian elite. Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister himself, said, this is a thievery. We didn't expect this. Um, then we have... But, uh, what, what, one critical point to understand is that those funds have not been seized. They have just been frozen. So Russia cannot have access to it, but they're still uh, technically uh, in their possession legally. Right. Russia does have ownership over it, but it doesn't control it. So hence the, the phrase from Sergei Lavrov. The, the next part of the financial sanctions were full blocking sanctions. In 2014, we saw only sectoral sanctions on Russian banks and energy companies. Today, we're talking about full blocking sanctions list, which is a death warrant to any entity to do any business internationally. And we have key systemic banks that were placed on the SDN list in the US and in the EU, UK and elsewhere. Um, like Sberbank, VTB, VEB, and Alpha Bank. So that means that no entity in the U.S. and no other countries can do any transactions with those sanctions entities, correct? Correct, yeah. yeah. And the last measure that was very much hyped uh, before the invasion is SWIFT. Everyone asked me, what does it mean? How powerful it would be? Well, it turned out it's not the nuclear option that we were thinking of. But that was um, an option that complemented the financial sanctions on top of all other ones. So the second pillar of the sanctions regime is expert controls. Uh, Russia has been under expert control restrictions since 2014, but this time uh, is very unprecedented as well because very novel expert controls been applied uh, against Russia. And this is so-called foreign direct protocol which prohibits uh, the export of technology of the U.S. origin technology in very extraterritorial nature. 
And we have a very broad coalition of the willing who join these uh, expert controls, including South Korea, Singapore, Japan. Some of those countries never joined uh, non-UN sanctions. So this is also unprecedented, which means in practical terms for Russia, it can no longer get advanced technologies such as chips and semiconductors. So this is a quite uh, weak spot in the Russian industry, and we can discuss how much impact we'll see in the future uh, for for Russian manufacturing. And the the last pillar here that I would like to to highlight is something that no one factored in here, is the so-called chilling effect. An exodus of Western companies. By now, we have more than 1,000 companies that withdrew. And by this chilling effect or de-risking of the private sector, we see that the impact of sanctions and export controls have been amplified. Uh, We are talking about the disruption in supply chains, uh, any logistics, and this is something that the Russian officials recently highlighted, how difficult it became to transport anything outside or to Russia. And here we should note one uh, particular type of companies that withdrew. It's from the energy sector, oil majors in particular, but also oil field service companies that previously dominated the high end of this market. Companies like Halliburton, Baker Hughes and others that are so critical to the Russian oil and gas field production, right? Exactly. So they used to occupy 60% of this high-end Russian market, and they were the key subcontractors for anything that was technologically challenging. So on top of these three pillars, there are additional adds-on, which shows how broad the sanctions regime became. So we have visa bans, asset freezes for oligarchs, government officials, Putin's inner circle, Putin himself and his Adult daughters are also now on the sanctions list, something that was, again, unthink of a couple of months ago. We have ban on luxury goods to Russia, transport sanctions in the shipping and airline uh, sectors. And the the final uh, cherry on the cake here is that Russia was stripped of most favored um, nation status is a key benefit of the WTO membership. So some countries like the UK decided to apply a 35 tariff on top of all of the other restrictions. So what is the economic impact of these sanctions on the Russian economy so far? Because if you look at the statistics, the ruble has rebounded after crashing initially post invasion uh, because of the capital controls that have been implemented. Russia's current account surplus is up almost 30 percent for the first four months of the year compared to the previous year, obviously because of the higher prices of commodities and uh, imports being down. Uh, But are we seeing significant impact on the economy so far from all of these activities? Yes and no. So we should start from the the beginning when the sanctions were in place. There was a significant shock effect and ruble fell by more than 40%. Now, the damage control measures that the Russian government implemented shows us that it came prepared for some of the measures, maybe not to all of them, but it was preparing for some of the sanction scenarios. So here we're talking about quite skillful interventions by the central bank officials in terms of monetary fiscal policies, very tight capital controls, also obligations on the um, exporters to repatriate up to 80% of their revenues. Um, Russia is also thinking how to um, redirect uh, the imports that are no longer available. Um, and as you said, so at the moment it has stabilized. The, the shock is fading, is wearing off uh, a little bit. Uh, which means that um, in the in the sanctions policy uh, in and of itself, it's important to ratchet up the pressure. We can talk about the energy uh, sanctions that are key here and is the absence of which is the key weakness of the current regime. But overall, we're already seeing problems in the Russian economy. So Russian officials like to shield it as, as a stable, but I would call it a very... A false sense of stability, this post the Soviet type of stability that everything is micromanaged, but it's not really. Once you let it go, it's all going to crumble. 
So the the, imp- the imports already fell by 50%. Uh, from uh, South Korea, Taiwan, it's even 70%. So here is the semiconductors and chips that we talked about. Even from non-aligned countries like China, imports have fallen. Not as much, but uh, they're also fallen. And do you think that is because the Chinese are afraid of secondary sanctions and it's just become harder to do business in Russia because the banks are sanctioned, so it's harder to get paid, harder to do payroll for your local employees and everything else? I think it's a combination of factors. China adopted wait-and-see approach. It wants to see... Uh, the room for maneuver for itself. Uh, We should be cautious uh, in terms of predicting how much China will help and save Russia out of this uh, problem. From 2014, Chinese private sector overcomplied with the previous sanctions. Sometimes it was the risk of secondary sanctions, but sometimes it was just lack of regional expertise. They just didn't know how to deal with entities from Russia and on top of this, uh, on top of sanctions problems, there were just traditional problem, Russian problems like corruption, administrative hurdles, and very opaque legal system. Yeah, I'll tell you, my conversations with Western firms that have pulled out, I've been hearing kind of two reasons. One, obviously, sort of support for Ukraine and outrage and wanting to, to um, isolate Russia. But, but a two, a very practical reason of how do we even deal with Russia now when we can't do... ACH transfers, wire transfers. We can't operate in the country just from practical perspective. And that's been one of the reasons for the pullout. Although I do have to mention that uh, when we're talking about Western companies pulling out, there's degrees of pulling out. Some of them are still paying their employees, even though they're not kind of suspending operations. You have franchises like McDonald's that have pulled out from their own uh, operated stores and particularly hotels have the situation, but anyone that owns a branded hotel may still operate. So um, there's kind of degrees of, of pulling out. And I think with oil field services firms, they're freezing future contracts, but they're still uh, fulfilling existing contracts. So you haven't seen any impact on existing production in Russia because of that. Yeah. Now, as, as people say, you know, uh, sanctions is a margin. Sometimes for Western, for also Chinese businesses, sometimes it's a calculation whether it's worth continuing business where the the previous atmosphere, business environment was already adverse. And then you have on top of it sanctions risk. So the question is whether it's worth doing it altogether. Yeah, yeah. So what, uh, you know, obviously there's been some impact. You said the imports are down and semiconductor uh, imports are down massively, which you know limits everything from production of cars. And we're seeing the shutdown of some of the automotive production lines in Russia already. There's some discussion that maybe they've even shut down production of, of tanks um, and other heavy equipment um, because they can't get access to chips. But what do you think is going to be, if assuming there's no further increase in sanctions, which is probably the wrong assumption, but if we just look at the existing ones, do you think that we, uh, Russia will start feeling the impact of this this year, the full impact, more longer term. Kind of, How do you see things evolving into the future, just looking at the current state of the sanctions and their economic impact? Right. The, despite the, the full sense of stability that some might describe or the, that is coming from Russia, the, the long term picture is rather bleak. Uh, it is expected that GDP will contract by 10-15% by the end of this year, depending on the calculations. And despite the skillful interventions, Russia is going back in time to the 90s, a period which is not really associated with, with anything positive. It's associated with poverty, economic depression, and scarcity. And this is something that uh, we'll potentially see in uh, by the end of the year and then further in the next years. And if we zoom out of this and think that the long-term perspective is about unplugging the world's 11th largest economy, we're talking about uh, economic, financial, technological, and energy decoupling. For Russia, that might be a fatal blow uh, because its economy is based on exporting hydrocarbons. With the EU now uh, preparing the plan Repower EU by 2027, they plan to end, not just phase out, end the import of Russian fuels, uh, fossil fuels. 
that is quite substantial. Will Russia be ready to redirect um, anything towards Asia, towards other countries? It's a big question mark. Yeah, and we should we should mention that you know when we talk about energy, we're talking about oil and gas, but they're quite different in that oil. There's high likelihood that EU will cut that off. Uh, they're they're trying to do the ban now. Hungary is protesting against that. Gas uh, will take much longer because they're much more dependent on it. But from an impact perspective, even if EU cuts off oil, oil is fungible. Russia could still ship oil to other customers around the world. Um, but with gas, it depends on pipelines, infrastructure, right? So if EU cuts it off, you don't necessarily have the pipelines uh, from the right fields going to China and elsewhere. So it's not as simple as oil to redirect it. Yeah, I think with the oil, it very much depends on the exact wording of the ban, because uh, the, there are now rumors, information that uh, shipping insurance can be part of it. If this is part of it, of the six uh, package, that means EU has one of the few, but still this asymmetrical weapon to uh, apply against Russia, because 95% of insurance comes from London for oil tankers. Could Russia self-insure if it loses access to global insurance markets? Well, that depends on the buyer. Who would want to take those risks <laughs> to, okay. you know, so this is more business perspective, how much appetite any business would want to, to have with, with Russia, dealing with Russia on top of reputational damage. But we'll certainly see more sanctions circumvention techniques that we can discuss in a bit. So this is something that Russia will be learning from Iran, from North Korea and Venezuela. But just one point on the large, uh, on the long-term perspective here. So we talk about decoupling, energy decoupling in particular, but there is also something that I think the Central Bank of Russia uh, aptly described, and it's the uh, structural transformation of the economy because it can no longer function the way it is under the current sanctions regime, and also reverse industrialization. I was rather surprised that these two key phrases for me it was put out there by the central bank quite boldly. And for, for Russia, it means relying less on an advanced technology. And this is a country that is already lagging behind technologically. So we are going back in time quite substantially, which will, in economic terms for Russia would mean slower economic growth, less innovation, less capital investment and any ability to attract new investment. So do you see this as a more of a gradual process uh, that the economy is on a downward spiral? Or do you think there's going to be a moment where it just falls off a cliff and you see just a massive GDP contraction taking place in a very short period of time? I think it depends on the also on the intervention and on Russia's ability to adapt to it. So if we are waiting for the phased out energy ban, oil ban in particular, that time, so timing matters in sanctions very much. And that allows Russia to adapt, maybe establish new supply chains, maybe find new customers with who are willing to buy Russian oil with discounts and Russia is willing to sell it. So it very much depends on the timing, how quickly you impose sanctions and how quickly the target adapts to it. So it's hard to, to give the precise picture how it will unfold. Yeah. But I think the long-term perspective is, is rather clear. It will be bleak. The, the mid-term is a bit more muddy because it depends on these interventions from the Russian side and the third parties as well. So, so there, there's some uh, internal dissidents, um, many of them have left Russia in recent uh, months that have been saying that Russia is uh, going to be turning into a new North Korea. In fact, there is sort of a joke that, uh, uh, a dark joke that uh, is, is, is being spread uh, in Russia that uh, Russia is the, the northerner North Korea uh, now. But do you think that's an accurate depiction uh, obviously, North Korea is completely isolated and, and is a complete basket case and uh, has people starving. Do you think that it's possible that Russia will get to, to that type of end state or is it just going to be a, a more compressed economy and, and uh, an economy that more maybe resembles the 90s with high rates of inflation and, and shortages? 
I think the, the size matters here. Uh, Russia is obviously too big to exclude entirely. So to create a North Korea on the Volga, I think it's a big security risk for everyone. Whether we want this uh, from the strategic point of view is something that we should be uh, factoring in in our end game with sanctions, which is uh, unfortunately missing <laughs> in terms of the sanctions regime. But also... We started with sanctions that were akin to the Iran type of sanctions. And Russia, in a way, speeded it up, fast-tracked it to the North Korean type of isolation by itself, by the atrocities that it committed in Ukraine. And that reputational damage was the main driver for the Western companies to withdraw. So the, the chilling effect is there, but the question is how far it will be. There are some rumors that some companies would be willing to come back. So I think in this case, it's easier to isolate something more contained as North Korea than, than Russia, because Russia occupies uh, you know, a large part of the globe. So even in terms of flying, that's uh, now major debacle and the major hindrance to to cross for example to asia so because you can't fly over russian territory you have to go around and i think also politically this is something that i don't think politicians in berlin or in paris are ready to to isolate russia and to create north korea what else do you think can be done to ratchet up the economic pressure aside from fossil fuel bans on oil and gas in particular do you think when you look at the, you mentioned the Iran sanctions or the so-called maximum pressure sanctions that we've had on Iran during the Trump administration and going to now, are we at those levels yet, you think, on the financial sector in Russia? I mean, there's still some banks like Gazprom Bank, for example, that are of course not sanctioned and many smaller banks that are not sanctioned. Um, would sanctions on those types of institutions create more pressure on Russia that, that's going to be impactful or is that just going to be minor incremental benefits? I think the the key aspect here is the absence of the energy ban. This is the the key weakness of the current sanctions regime because Russia receives around $1 billion uh, per day from the export of its commodities. Uh, While the coal ban um, will be implemented by mid-August, As you described, oil and in particular gas are very tricky to to implement because of the EU's uh, lack of diversified suppliers and failed strategy to to be more resilient in terms of uh, its energy security. So I think we should unpack this uh, energy ban in particular, the, the importance of it. Because if it's not there, it means it's counterproductive to the whole objective of sanctions. The objective of sanctions is to erode Russia's ability to fund the war. And what we're seeing is that the EU is basically indirectly funding with the import of its oil um, or gas. So if the oil, uh, if the energy ban is not there, a windfall uh, from the export uh, in the Russian budget is expected from 250, 350 um, billion dollars uh, by the end of this year. So that is quite substantial uh, to the extent that it's substantial to continue the war, to fund it for another year and a half, two years. And this is whether it's in, in the West's interest to prolong it for so long, again, a big question mark. So this is a very uh, substantial piece that is missing there, that was implemented against Iran. And um, again, we'll, we'll see how much of this will unfold if Hungary is, is cursed or uh, seduced by other um, funds that they, they requested for modernization of its oil infrastructure. The other type of sanctions that we didn't see here is secondary sanctions. This is something that the Biden administration uh, try not to impose because it, it wants to repair, to revive those transatlantic uh, relationships. And in Europe, any reference to extraterritorial sanctions is a very sensitive topic. 
EU even uh, came out, published its uh, open strategic autonomy that specifically says that we need to shield ourselves from extraterritorial sanctions. So if this measure is coming from the US, it needs to be really part of the broad sanctioning coalition, which is not there. But this is something that could be very effective in uh, preventing any sanctions circumvention by non-aligned parties like India, who, who, had, who has ramped up the imports of Russian oil by 50% or China. And have we fully sanctioned the defense sector in Russia? And do you think that we will see secondary sanctions on any countries that are still trying to purchase you know, aircraft and air defense systems and other um, equipment from Russia? As far as I know, defense is not necessarily my uh, area of expertise, but as uh, as far as I know, the the critical components, uh, the the shipment of critical components has been sanctioned quite extraterritorially and also in a quite expensive way. So quite a lot of companies from the defense sector have been sanctioned, like Ural Wagonzavod, the the shipbuilding companies. Um, So this is something that uh, Russia is already facing uh, problems with, as you described, Ural Wagonzavod, Chilabin structure plant can no longer build the items that it uh, meant to build. And that's one of the biggest tank manufacturers, um, among other things. What what about uh, commodity exports? I mean, we talk a lot about energy, but Russia also exports massive amounts of aluminum and nickel and titanium, all sorts of products. Um, how important is that to the Russian economy? And obviously, that's also very hard to cut off because of dependencies, not just on, of Europe, but of uh, the United States on, on these things. Titanium, for example, used in Boeing planes and uh, many other um Uh, industrial applications. Right. This is another sector where sanctions can be expanded. Um, But this is the the problem uh, of uh, lack of resilience in the West because they are so much dependent on uh, Russian palladium, for example, or nickel. That's why we see that uh, Patanian, a Russian businessman who owns the the nickel plant, hasn't been sanctioned in any jurisdiction as far as I know. So you have those people, entities who are still too big to sanctions because that would be akin to the 2018 sanctions when Deripaska and his companies were sanctioned, which um, unraveled the whole aluminum market. So the idea is not to repeat the same mistake. The idea is to work in the background and sourcing other uh, suppliers or rebuilding your supply chains before you applied such a massive sanctions that could backfire on you as a, as a center of the sanctions. So, you know, since 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea and helped to stir an insurgency in the Donbass, Putin and his uh, entourage have been talking about how they're going to sanction-proof the Russian economy and make sure that they're going to do import substitutions of Western products and so forth. Uh, so it's been eight years. And uh, as you said, they, they did not quite expect the level of sanctions that have been leveled on them. But how prepared do you think they have made the Russian economy since 2014 to withstand um, some of the sanctions that the West did put on them? That is true that Russia came much more prepared to the current sanctions regime than it was in 2014. And it built a fortress Russia. It was meant to shield itself, to insulate itself from any external pressure, in particular from U.S. pressure and its uh, primacy on the uh, U.S. dollar. And it aimed to diminish any exposure to the West. It came in two main uh, phases, if you want. It's import substitution and de-dollarization. Import substitution was not necessarily sanction-driven, but that was very much accelerated by the 2014 sanction. The bottom line of this, having analyzed import substitution for the past five years, it largely failed. We can talk that some low-tech items was possible to substitute, but anything of high-tech, advanced equipment, the dependency, high dependency is still there. And this is something that we, as as we discussed earlier, see now in automotive, uh, aerospace sectors, that certain cars can no longer be produced. And uh, the, the Russian government is talking, as we said, about reverse industrialization, 
those items will be much less advanced and sometimes with safety issues like cars without airbags and so on. So the dependency is very much there. And also um, it goes both to the military and civilian sector because the high dependency in the manufacturing sector is is quite uh, substantial. So machine tools, any equipment to produce items that's imported from the West, anything. And we just saw Siemens announce that they're going to pull out and they have a lot of business in China to provide equipment to various industrial sectors, right? That, that is very substantial. It's a company with 170-year history, so it has been very much intertwined with Russia. So this is a, is a big deal and will, be, uh, will have a big impact on the Russian economy. So in terms of de-dollarization, I would say that Russia has been more successful in a way because it's a top-driven policy that is lighter to push, a bit easier to push. And it was visible with uh, international reserves that it has shifted uh, from the U.S. dollar to other currencies like Chinese yuan. Russia has become the largest holder of Chinese yuan. Uh, the government also accumulated a vast amount of gold, and also uh, Japanese yen was one of the preferable currencies. De-dollarization also uh, was meant to go on the cross-border transactions, which is, uh, again, visible in the Sino-Russian trade. The, the trade now shifted from the U.S. dollar to the euro. So they didn't go for national currencies because of their volatilities, capital controls in China. So the safe uh, haven here was the, the euro. And then finally, uh, a third part of this de-dollarization strategy was to create a non-US-centered financial infrastructure. And here we're talking about uh, national payment card, MIR, or any alternative to SWIFT uh, that Russia has tried to create it. We should say that uh, while it's it's there, it's been created, but both uh, those equivalents have uh, stronger limitations on uh, being on their ability to act abroad. So any international reach is just not there. You can't pay with mere card abroad the same. With- because most most payment processors and banks did not adopt adopt these standards, right? So if you want to use it within Russia, you can, but it's hard to use it internationally. There are technological issues, how much uh, operational this card is, but it's also the inability to attract any foreign financial institutions. Those are mainly those who joined MIR and SPFS, the alternative to SWIFT, they're all from post-Soviet space. So, for example, Belarus has joined and is happy to use it, but this is uh, this is not the the viable MIR card, which can be translated as world or peace, is just not there. And even China has been quite reluctant to, to team up with those alternatives from Russia. And the Chinese Union Pay now uh, stopped uh, using the uh, MIR cards that were issued for transactions abroad. I, I think some of the most visible impact, uh, both internationally and to the Russian citizens, has been on their... Um, domestic airlines and ability to fly planes, right? You had leasing companies that have pulled out, although Russia signed a law preventing them um, from um, uh, exporting those planes and uh, getting them seized uh, internationally. But you have uh, maintenance companies that have pulled out, Boeing and Airbus. So, uh, I mean, are we facing prospects where prospect where you will just not have any air travel at all in Russia because uh, the planes can't be serviced? in the near future? And when do you think that might happen? So here, this is where import substitution and the failure of import substitution comes in because the government uh, announced that they will use uh, Suhoi Superjet, the alternative of Boeing, if you want. And this is something where they, again, found the the main vulnerability that they procure uh, engines from France, for example. So... By those com- if those companies withdraw uh, and they already withdrew, that means the Russian companies can no longer maintain. Uh, so anything updating that will be very tricky because this is under sanctions regime, which means uh, railway is is the way to go. Probably Russia is a big country and has vast uh, railway network. 
But in terms of planes, um, there has been a major problem. There were attempts to nationalize those assets that were left in Russia in terms of plane uh, aircraft as well. Uh, but uh, this is one of the sector industry that has been hit the most already. So sanctions are still unraveling. So the, again, the long-term picture is rather bleak. And, and as you said, Russia is a very big country. So uh, rail is, is not ideal for travel. If you're going from Moscow to Vladivostok, that's going to take you a week or more to get there. So uh, this, this can have quite an impact. And on disconnecting the country, right, and mm-hmm. uh, um, shutting off even kind of domestic business across um, across the, the big vast space that is Russia. Um, what one of the things that people bring up often is um, obviously Ukraine has suffered massively in the course of this war, not just in loss of life, but in loss of infrastructure. And there's talk that Russia needs to pay reparations for it, which they probably will not do do willingly. But uh, there's discussions of sort of you know, possibility of seizing Russian foreign reserves, the 300 billion that you mentioned, and giving that to Ukraine, uh, or even seizing oligarch money and, and giving that to Ukraine as part of the reparations. Um, is that even legally possible? What What is the prospect of that? That is the, the, the key question here, how to adopt your legislative framework, because there are a few cases here in between where confiscation of assets happened. And the recent, the most prominent cases was Afghanistan, when the U.S. seized and confiscated, I believe, $3.5 billion from the Afghan government. So this is the case that uh, people who support uh, the same scenario for Ukraine bring up. But the the scope of confiscation of assets also depends very much on the jurisdiction. The U.S. has its own proposals to create new powers, uh, how to confiscate it, both in Senate and Congress, I believe, have different proposals how to expand it. And uh, since the U.S. has... Um, longer hand in terms of extraterritorial impact and reach, that could be in a way easier to do than for the EU. EU is, as we know, um, has 27 veto powers and all enforcement of sanctions is up to the member states. So the EU recently, I believe today, even uh, yesterday, uh, proposed to expand uh, and create new powers to enable this confiscation and that would go through the designating sanctions evasion as a serious crime. There is a precedent in Italy uh, where anti-mafia law was uh, put in place in the 90s to fight the criminality. So this is a similar uh, template that has been uh, now expo- uh, expanded to the EU level. But each member state, as we know, have different capacities, have different sometimes political will to go after it. So the idea is to create some sort of pan-European homogenous ability to confiscate those assets. And in this case, we're talking about um, oligarchs' money, assets, yachts, and mansions that were frozen from oligarchs. So we're not actually talking about central bank assets. And in terms of volumes, uh, it's much smaller than the central bank assets. So, and the EU also has the ability um, for the oligarchs to redress those uh, decisions. They can challenge it in EU courts. And uh, looking at the previous sanctions regimes, in particular misappropriation sanctions regime vis-a-vis Ukraine, that hasn't been successful. There are many cases where oligarchs won the cases. Uh, which is some sort of reputational damage for the EU as well. So the amount of money that can be confiscated and recovered from it is rather small. So we should maybe tame our expectations how much of this uh, can be done. Uh, Canada has proposed a new um, idea, a suggestion how to do it. And that was to basically uh, allow oligarchs to buy out their way out of sanctions. This is a very novel approach to uh, to play on their moral or uh, political uh, aspirations and interests. But I would say, knowing how the, the Russian system works, that's rather um, pessimistic how much they would be willing Although to... Although the, the Canadian foreign minister that proposed this is claiming that she had been approached by oligarchs themselves 
with that suggestion, but uh, I'm kind of dubious that the Russian government would not retaliate against most of these oligarchs whose fortunes are still within Russia if they attempted to do something like this. They would be immediately labeled as traitors, and we know that traitor for Putin regime and Putin personally is a big thing, so they yeah. should be definitely uh, fearful for their, um, for their life in the West. Yeah. So, so there was a lot of talk uh, before the war and even in the initial kind of days of the war that China is going to come to Russia's rescue and uh, the sanctions weren't going to work because of this unprecedented close relationship that has been established between China and, and Russia, at least on paper. Obviously, during the Olympics, they signed this treaty, uh, not treaty, but uh, communique of uh, friendship without limits, as they called it. And we're finding out that there are actually substantial limits to that friendship. And, and do you think the, the impact of China on mitigating uh, some of the, the, the sanction impact has been limited because China is just not able to, by and large, to help Russia because it, it cannot provide them semiconductors because it, it, it itself struggles with, with manufacturing of, the, of those uh, uh, chips and, and uh, doesn't have the uh, capacity to maintain Boeing and Airbus planes, uh, as an example? Or, or do you think it just didn't really want to help because of fear of secondary sanctions or not wanting to get involved, or is it a combination of the two? It's a combination of, of main, various factors, as some of them, as you described. China adopted wait-and-see approach to see how the story is unfolding. The, the problem here is that the longer the war continues, the more difficult it is for China to keep it, as uh, was described in Financial Times at one point, pro-Russia neutrality. So we are sort of neutral, but we're leaning towards Russia. And obviously, China here is the key country to look for any sanctions circumvention, mitigation of sanctions. But if we go back to 2014, China was also a key country here. All eyes were in China as well. And here, the bottom line is that China would always capitalize on Russia's isolation, but it would be very cautious to violate Western sanctions in an outright fashion. Because it, it wants to keep this precarious balance between the need to support your authoritarian strategic partner with no limits partnership, but you still dependent very much on financial economic ties to the West. So how to come out from this and not be in sanctions by the US is a big question mark. So at the moment, we're seeing that China is quietly ramping up uh, Russian oil uh, for its strategic reserves. It's one of the, of the stories here we didn't see. Um, but is that, do you think it is doing that to help Russia or is it just a self-serving interest to, to increase their oil reserves in case they themselves might come, up, uh, uh, come under sanctions from the U.S., either secondary sanctions or for human rights violations in Xinjiang, Hong Kong, and elsewhere? With China, it's always about protecting your national interest first. They're not going to offer you anything uh, for low cost. And that was the story of 2014, when the Russian officials, elite, expected uh, this miraculous help from China and they would save uh, Russia from Western sanctions. This time, the Russian elite, the assessment is much more sober. They know the limitations uh, as well that would come from Chinese help. And uh, we're also seeing it right now. The only thing that at the moment China is helping is with um, something that is not sanctioned, is purchasing Russian oil that is uh, still not sanctioned from there. But the, the other lesson from 2014 is that there is a distinction between government-backed institution and the private sector. Uh, already back then, the private sector overcomplied with Western sanctions. Government-backed institutions, uh, on the contrary, were willing to engage with sanctioned companies like Novatech and to provide financing or technology. So I believe we can see the same development that will unfold with more sanctions being piled on, on Russia. And there are certain areas of cooperation that I can see where China could potentially help. 
again, if it's not uh, direct risk of secondary sanctions. It's LNG equipment, something the Chinese companies has mastered its expertise on the Russian territory because they were not the leading uh, providers of this technology. But now they can substitute Western companies uh, for Russian Arctic projects that are already suffering from a combination of sanctions, export controls and the chilling effect. Also providing this financing, South Korean companies, for example, shipyards now uh, canceled the contracts for the building of uh, LNG fleet, something that Russia also can't do. So something that uh, China could potentially finance. China is also buying up all of the assets that Western companies are living in the energy sector, Sakhalin 2 um, in the Arctic LNG 2 potentially as well. And semiconductors, right? Here, the, the situation is rather tricky uh, because of the pandemic, because of the global shortage of semiconductors, and now we have sanctions. Uh, there, there is big uncertainty how much China can help here. Well, and China doesn't have enough. They don't have enough production for their own domestic use. So it's hard for me to see that they're going to spend yeah. their limited resources to, to ship it to to Russia. Let me ask you this. I mean, uh, this this is going to be uh, a little bit unfair because I'm going to have to ask you to take out your crystal ball here. But when you sort of look at um, the history of sanctions globally, right, we've had a number of regimes that have been sanctioned, North Korea, Iran, Iraq in the past, and so Venezuela, etc. Um, and we haven't seen significant impact in terms of policy shift from these countries, um, despite severe sanctions. So what do you think is a prospect for actually impacting Putin's calculus? Obviously, he has not stopped prosecuting this war. He has continued to commit atrocities. Is this, does this policy really have a chance of uh, achieving its effects even over the medium to long term? It is hard to sell sanctions as a policy because of all of these failures in the past. But we should say that the objective of these sanctions is not a behavioral change, right? That was uh, said by the Biden administration as well. This time is about eroding this Russia's ability to fund the war. And uh, Lloyd Austin, uh, U.S. Secretary of Defense, expanded on this a little bit, um, how much this brings uncertainty is still uh, unclear, but he said we should curtail Russia's power and curtail its ability to repeat the same aggression um, in Ukraine. That doesn't make any long-term perspective with sanctions clear, as, as you described, maximum pressure campaign doesn't mean that the economy will collapse. And we have plenty of examples, uh, North Korea, Iran, Venezuela, who are still surviving. They're not thriving. So probably if I pick up my crystal ball and say Russia will survive, it's not going to thrive. It will try to circumvent sanctions as been learning to do through other sanctions regimes, Syria, North Korea, and so on, but also to team up with those sanctioned countries um, as it has been doing for the last uh, few years as well. Um, but I think here is important, uh, something that is lacking in this current uh, sanctions regime is the lack of conditionality and endgame, as I was uh, describing earlier. Uh, the previous sanctions regime was linked to the Minsk Agreement too, and we can all say how useless that agreement was, but there was a, some sort of conditionality. If you do this, we're going to do this. This time, this conditionality is absent, so we are more or less talking about reactionary sanctions policy. The, the red lines for Russian transgressions are shifting forward. If Russia imposes chemical um, weapons, we're going to impose this type of sanctions. So there is no proactive sanctions policy in place. And I think this could be a mistake because the red lines are getting redder. It's much harder to uh, counteract them with sanctions which are of limited use. We should also be open about this, that there are limitations that we can achieve with sanctions. And the other part of this is an end game, because eroding Russia's ability is good in and of itself for the short period of time. But are we talking about a ceasefire, a negotiated settlement? If yes, in terms of territorial uh, lines, is it going back to February 24 or is it bringing back Crimea, some people advocate, or is it a military defeat in Russia? And all of these three uh, strategies would require also very different policy approaches. And I think there is no 
cohesive policy in the West. Berlin is and Paris are also thinking that this is not good to humiliate Russia, to bring it to military defeat. So the West is not on the same page despite this unprecedented unity. So those are the, the issues which I think very important to, to work through um, and to have more control, more foresight as the war continues um, in the next um, months, at least. <laughs> well, and, and you know, uh, it, it's one thing to, to say that you're crippling the Russian economy. It's another thing to say that you're actually going to impact their war aims in Ukraine, because as we have seen with both North Korea and Iran, even though their economies contracted sharply under sanctions, they still were able to redirect a significant portion of their GDP into weapons procurement and support of their military. And you might see the same thing happening in Russia, uh, where the civilian sector is suffering even more so, but the military still gets paid um, to do what it needs to. Uh, Last question for you, Maria. This has just been so fascinating. And this is, again, another crystal ball question, but you're now seeing huge effects on the Ukrainian economy, of course, because of the blockade of the ports. Uh, I've talked on this podcast many times about the issues that the Ukraine's facing with not just food uh, like grain and oil, but uh, export of coal and and, um, uh, other critical industrial products. And and there's really no substitution that Ukraine can find uh, for breaking that blockade in terms of rail infrastructure, everything else. Uh, There's just not enough capacity to do so. And now we saw this week, uh, for the first time, a Russian deputy foreign minister say, well, we might be willing to lift the blockade, at least partially, in exchange for sanctions relief. Do you think that that has a chance of going somewhere? Uh, Because this is not just a Ukrainian question. You have potential for famine around the world um, if the wheat uh, does not get to Africa and parts of Asia. Um, Could cause huge destabilizations as well. Uh, do you think there'll be pressure, both internal pressure on Zelensky and potentially external pressure to ask uh, for a compromise and, and um, ask the West to drop some of these sanctions in exchange for uh, blocking the blockade? Do, do you see that prospect? As we talked just now, well, the West doesn't have its own conditionality. Russia is ready to give you one too. <laughs> if you, you know, if you want to avoid any global food crisis, lift sanctions. And I think uh, this is something that uh, I don't see it getting any traction because politicians and also ordinary people see it as a weaponization of uh, blackmail. Global cra- yes, well, blackmail, <laughs> something that, you know, Russia is good at. So in this case, uh, I think the, the work is being done how to reroute grain uh, from Ukraine, um, either by patrolling of the Black Sea with potentially non-NATO ships, something that has been floated now, or to redirect it via railway. Uh, It is a tricky question how much of this can be done. But at the same time, uh, Ukraine is suffering internally without the ability to export this, um, and people are starving as well, in places like Mariupol and so on. It is not a pretty picture for anyone, and that's why, you know, um, eroding Russia's ability to fund the war is, I think, key here, how to get out of it. Well, we'll end on that note. Uh, that's a wrap for us today, folks. Thank you so much, Marina, for for joining. This was an incredible, insightful, in-depth discussion on the sanctions policy as it is today and the implications for the future. And I hope to see everyone next week. Thank you. Thank you very much.